0: a one-eyed being, being that is what it ate. This dashing little twerp is the culmination of culture, pinnacle of evolution, apex of a migratory formation ever stretching toward tomorrow, the living end. He is the light at the end of his own tunnel vision, head of the class, fruit of the womb, King of all kin, the filial full of itself, the mongrel with a pedigree, the heir that puts on airs, he is the biggest cock on the block. Description. Oof. You know the type. Lives on lamb's milk. Eats the cat's pajamas. Thinks it's the crown of creation and wears it out. Voice, a sophisticated singer, a baritone blowhard, vulgar. Habitat, the public domain, architectural structures, various vehicles, restaurants, theaters, halls of power.
1: history, a legacy,
2: my family has a tree, no relative shrubbery.
3: Thanks for coming out to Roulette tonight, Uh, it's going to be a fantastic show, Carla Kilstedt's Necessary Monsters. Let's hear it. All right. Uh, My name is Seth Bostead and I'm a composer, I'm also the executive director of Access Contemporary Music, the organization producing this festival. Tonight is night three of uh, the Relevant Tones 10th Anniversary Festival. So Relevant Tones is a podcast about the most fascinating time in classical music history right now. Uh, Some people say it's all the stuff in the past, and that's really lovely stuff. But it's just a handful of dead people, you know, from like five or six countries. And uh, today we've got composers from almost every country writing music and exploring all kinds of different musical traditions. So when I say classical music, I'm talking about the broadest possible definition of classical. Uh, So we opened up the festival on Thursday with music inspired by Rube Goldberg machines. And the stage was full of all kinds of crazy things. Our guest was uh, Jennifer George, Rube Goldberg's granddaughter. Last night we launched a new series called Songs About Buildings and Moves. exploring music and architecture. Our guest was Daniel Liebeskind. It was a really phenomenal evening. And I am just extremely excited tonight. I met Carla Kilstead through the podcast Relevant Tones, which I should mention I host, Um, and uh, was at one time a syndicated radio show back when we had such things, and uh, now continues on as a podcast. So if if you have an interest in contemporary classical music, and again in the broadest possible sense, there are QR codes out in the uh, lobbies. Hope you'll scan it and subscribe and check out Relevant Tones because we're doing a lot of really cool things. And And we're doing a lot of live events um, like this one as well. So I was doing a show on composers inspired by Jorge Luis Borges. And I used this amazing tool called Google and it was uh, googling around, and I found a project called Necessary Monsters by Carla Kilstedt, which I thought was finished. Uh, we'll talk about that <laughs> with her in a moment. And I think the music is just phenomenal, and, and we hit it off really well. And I was already kind of planning this podcast festival, and she was saying that uh, she wants to do an album launch party at some point, and I thought, hey, let's do it you know, uh, at, at the same time. So we're gonna talk just a little bit um, before, and then there'll be a little bit of uh, time to change over, because it's, as you can see, quite a large ensemble. And we're also live streaming tonight, and um, all the live streams have sounded fantastic, so the roulette engineers will need just a little bit of time to tweak the mics and everything. Um, But let's, uh, I've got a couple of special guests tonight in addition to Carla, which is really exciting. So first I want to bring up Stephen Asma, um, who is a professor of philosophy at Columbia College in Chicago, and he is also the author of a book called On Monsters. And um, let's bring up poet Raphael Osis, who is a really integral part of uh, this project as well. All right. (laughs) And let's have a big hand, please, for Carla Gilstead. All right, welcome everybody. We're here. Nice, so good <laughs> to be it. here. We're doing it. It's been
2: a minute for me <laughs> since this kind of room has experienced this kind of like molecules in a room moving with people Absolutely. and focus and enthusiasm.
3: So we're going to mostly let Carla save her voice, and we do have our special guest, Stephen, who is an expert on all things monsters. (laughs) Right? Am I wrong? That's
4: that's quite a setup. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I thought I was invited because it was October, and it was Monster Month, and that's a big month for me. Um, And then I I heard the music, and it's fantastic. You're in for a treat. And it's a great honor to be invited to speak about it. I I could say a few words just about the history of... um, sort of monsters and books like Borges' um, Book of Imaginary Beings for maybe for some context. Would that be all right? Yeah, no, of course. That's, exa- that's okay. why you're here. Let's do it. So um, one thing that's interesting is Borges writes this in the late 50s, and the title of the book is uh, Book of Ima- Imaginary Beings, and it's part of this long tradition that goes back to the ancient Greeks. Herodotus and Tesius would have written sort of books like this, and then the... The sort of most seminal book is by a Roman named Pliny the Elder, and Pliny writes this encyclopedia, which is a natural history, and then this has a huge influence on all the medieval bestiaries and menageries, and eventually the kind of uh, museum on paper that you find in the Renaissance and the early modern period. And so Borges is drawing on that in particular, Uh, but nobody would have written a book about imaginary beings before the, like, the middle of the 1800s, because All the beings they listed, including griffins and unicorns and crazy stuff, would have all been potentially real to all previous versions. It's only after sort of the scientific revolution and really the 1800s that people demarcate clearly, oh, there's real stuff, and then there's these imaginary creatures. And so when I was rereading it to get ready for this event, I was looking at Borges' foreword, and he makes this really interesting comment where he says... "Um, You know, there are these necessary monsters, thus the title, and also unnecessary monsters. But he doesn't say a whole lot about what the difference is. He gives two examples which are really interesting. One, he says, um, the dragon is a necessary monster because it appears in all these different cultures and at different times. It has a sort sort of similar morphology, zoology form. But then he names some other stuff that he thinks are unnecessary monsters or ephemeral monsters, one of which is the chimera, which you may remember is like a lion in front and a sort of a, I think it's a goat in the middle and a serpent at the back end. And he says, this is an unnecessary monster. And he doesn't also really- Also impractical, really. Right, right, he says, it's just not believable that this if you pasted this together, it doesn't hang together like a, like a real monster. And so one, one thing I was thinking about, and this is really sort of a question for Raphael and for Carlos is you know when do you have a kind of uh, a coherent monster, something that holds together as opposed to something that's incoherent. So maybe that's enough. Just preparatory comments.
3: Oh, that's great. And I mean, so Carly can you, or, or Raphael, either of you, respond to the necessary monsters. <laughs> um, he's saving his voice too. Okay, <laughs> well, just you know, in, in a in a in a calm tone.
2: <laughs> I, I'm going to pass the mic to you in a second. But I wanted to remember to remember with you that you might not know this but when I first was invited, I had got a grant to make a big piece and I was like, mm, what am I gonna do? And I had just finished working on a beautiful um, piece that I was playing violin and doing a, a, a voice part for uh, that was a collaboration between Raphael and our mutual friend, Mark Orton, um, a radio drama called Violet Enlightens. And so I had Raphael's words in my head and I just, like, well, maybe I'll do something with Raphael, and I, I knew you only only a little bit then, really, and I called Mark, who, has, who had known you at the, that point, knew you much better, and said, Mark, do you think Raphael might be into working with me on this um, project? I have this book, it's about imaginary creatures, and I'm thinking of using that, and Mark was like, no. <laughs> 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 he, he, he said, if I know Raphael, I don't think he's really that into, like, Imaginary stuff and like unicorns and dragons and stuff like that. So, I mean you can ask him
3: You're not a Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> kind of guy or a role-playing kind of person? Not yet. <laughs> not, not yet. Okay, so there's still room, you know. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
0: I love Carla Kilstedt. That's why I did this piece. It's not about Borges, it's not about monsters, it's not about... Um, Just so I said yes, of course, and um, to look through Borges' book, you know, there's a little monster in all of us, and these are just the nine that I chose or that chose us, but you look through that book and it's infinite. We can can stay on this stage for the rest of our lives, putting a string of necessary and unnecessary monsters uh, together, so... I tried to avoid the griffin. I tried to avoid all that stuff that didn't talk to me or the monsters inside me. Um, so I looked at it as a writer, I looked at it as an artist. And somehow these beings are talking about the creative process somehow of singing and not being heard, of growing, of losing part of yourself but still remaining whole, of existing you know. An animal dreamed. Being that sings unsung. Nothing but a song or at least wishing that were so. This beast is blessed with unprecedented thoughtlessness. As pure as the unspoken word, she yelps and howls joyously in the forest, a guileless song sung for no one. Description, she is great and beautiful and dumb. The most delicate and glorious of all beasts. Voice, thick coming trills. A glossy throat wonders at its song. habitat, the thickest center of untraveled woods. The Squonk, being that cries at the drop of a tear. The Squonk is sorrow herself, the embodiment of sadness, a creature of rare elegance and melancholy. Her capacity for compassion knows no bounds. When cornered, she has the unique ability to entirely evaporate in tears, thereby returning her salt to the earth. Description. A molding dollop ready for deduction. A sprung set of locks. A frothy and glittering body of water. A great salt lake. Voice, a sort of whale song, a soothing and wavering blubber. Habitat, Pennsylvania coal country, Minnesota forests.
2: I have a little bit of that, like, uh, the mon- who is there a monster that like likes to accumulate things? There must be. I think there is one I'm in sure that book. I a dragon yeah. accumulates money, right? Yeah, Gold. Right, <laughs> <yeah>. I <laughs> have a little a bit of that, of like, oh, and then we could, oh, and then, ooh, and then we could. And so, this really doing, setting up for this was actually a really great exercise for me, really, several times. And the band was really awesome, too. I mean, like, or oh, you know, how about we have wine glasses here? Because they're on the record, we could do this. Or I could play a harmonic and you could play, like we have all these instruments and all these people who are masters of their instruments and can do, you know, you think you've heard all the things that a trumpet can do or that an accordion can do and they're like, oh, oh, that's, what can we do with less? And so I feel like for this, we've like stripped, stripped our monsters down to their fur and skin.
3: But I love that. I, th- I think that's a, an incredible challenge for composers and for musicians. I mean, to pr- reproduce these kinds of ideas acoustically, because as you said, it is doable. There are all kinds of extended techniques on the instruments that you can do that it sound fantastic and hopefully achieve the same result, especially if, if we all suspend disbelief and buy in, which you know, we'll do. And
2: these are leaner times. <laughs> well, yeah, that they are, that they are,
3: that they are. <laughs> Yeah, These and, and you leaner know, leaner
2: times, and we, we are no less, we are no less rich for it. For it, that's <laughs> this true. Does not, that's this true. Is not, Does not feel like a step down. This feels like a. Step forward. And
3: step I do forward. have a chattering teeth app on my phone. If you want it, just <laughs> let me know. I can if, I can pull can it out at, at a moment's notice. At the notice. same time, <laughs> really, like, that would be really good. <laughs> um, you know what you say, I I really love what you said about is there a monster that accumulates things? Uh, you were talking about necessary monsters and unnecessary monsters in Borges. But are there are there sort of like I mean you know and, and the dragon is like a, a sort of cautionary tale about greed. I mean you know what talk about the psychological import of, of monsters. I mean why are they so fascinating to us? And, and, and could you divide them into monsters that represent foibles and and uh, you know, potential problems with humans and just monsters that are fun.
4: Yeah, the the ancients uh, saw monsters as uh, more like uh, biologists might see foreign species. They saw them as natural, just living in faraway places. And so they're very famous monsters of the ancient world. The Blemies, for example, were humanoid, but they had no head, and their faces jutted out of their chest. The Kinocephali were like humanoid, but they had dogs' heads for, you know, heads. Cyclops were considered to be a whole species. Um, when you get to the medievals, it starts to get that moral um, and sort of allegorical quality t- to it. So the giants then represent uh, what the Greeks would have called hubris, but the Christians called pride. So all of the, the giants you find in many of the giant stories are, need to get laid low by you know, justice. And th- this is true, for example, in the East, you have a wonderful tradition of the hungry ghosts. Um, I'm from Chicago and I was walking around and you have coffee shops called the Hungry Ghosts and I was laughing because uh, that's a very powerful tradition in uh, Asian culture. and Spirited if
2: away. You've just totally yeah, clarified spirited away, yeah. spirited away from me.
4: Okay, that's it. Yeah, That's when you're like a, a glutton, you will come back either always hungry, like a hungry ghost, and usually you, you have a pinhole mouth or no mouth at all. So you're being, in a sense, punished for your gluttony and and there's all kinds of other foul stuff which I don't want to get into because it's (laughs) gruesome. But yeah, a lot of times monsters are part of these morality allegories. And then I think it's in the 20th century that you get uh, the idea of the internal monster, the sort of, it goes back to Plato, but Freud really gives us this language. It's these libidinal or aggressive tendencies within, the sort of darker elements which were supposed to, well, they just seem alien, they don't seem like us, and then they sort of erupt out. And I know that I heard some of that happening in the composition now and then too, and that those aren't ever going to go away because they're inside us. So we, then we sort of uh, project them out into the external world and try to repudiate them, but they're not really going to go anywhere.
3: And that's part, I mean, that's part of what we talked about when I originally talked with you about this project. And uh, you know, I mean, Borges has his idea of necessary monsters, but it seems to me, Carla and Rafael, that, that uh, you're, you're, in the description for the show, it says something about I mean, the monsters that live in the heads of each one of us. I mean, necessary monsters, it's almost like we have to have these things inside of us.
2: I, I think the, the real, all the ones, the, the ones that we have now spent 15 years with, we began this project 15 years ago. Um, so they, I think, for me, they have gone through an evolution of feeling like, oh, this is this is that one, and that's that one, and now I, I know I, I know where they live in in me, and it really is useful to be able to name them and be like, oh, like the what I just said, that was, that was my ink monkey, <laughs> and the ink monkey is a really interesting one. Um, and you might tell me if you know more about this. I was just, the ink monkey comes, I believe, from Chinese mythology, but um, I recently, just a few months ago, was doing a little research when we were getting back into this, and I found an article that um, mentions that they actually that, that some naturalists actually believe that the ink monkey exists, that it's a four-inch monkey, and it sits on your desk. And this is interesting, the transla- translation between... What the real monkey would have done, and would ha- where they would ha- where it would have been, and where the mytho- myth- mythological monkey uh, uh, occurs, and evidently the scribes or the, the the people writing writing wasn't something you could just wasn't like this back then, right? <laughs> like involved like making the ink and it was a whole very, very elaborate process. And evidently, and I don't, the person writing this was like has, one step back from saying this is true, but but did say that there are some people believe that these monk, these little four inch monkeys would help these scribes with the process of, I'm not sure if it was the blotting or the making of the ink, but were actually useful in some way because of their size in the process of writing. and. I can't be more specific than that. But, so the, but the ink monkey would sit on their desk and watch while they wrote. And I imagine they would be you know, waiting for the next time they were going to be useful in whatever part of the process that was. And, um, but I love the fact that now the ink monkey, as it, as it morphed into, from uh, the real world into mythology, um, and there's definitely an environmental uh, unspoken... Uh, element to that trans- transition, um, but as as it morphed into like a story, we tell, um, we tell it as the ink monkey sitting there judging your every word and watching you write, saying, oh, "God, that's, you are so foolish," <laughs> um, and like because what it wants to do is drink the monkey. It's, it's it's the ink monkey's ink, and you're just wasting it. And so we've kind of we, we project this idea of the ink monkey being of our own self-criticism onto the ink monkey. And for me, as a teacher, I I teach composition, and so the ink monkey, we're all very familiar with our own internal judge and critic, and um, it's a really useful part of the process. And I finally, just in the last few months, I finally had this moment with a student where I was like, wait a minute, so you're being felled by your ink monkey. And I am very familiar with this because I have also been felled by my ink monkey many times. Um, but here's what you need to do. You can't cut these things out of yourself. You can't, you cannot cut, but you can promise the ink monkey a seat at the head of the table at, in the next chapter of the process. You can say, okay, you actually, I need you. You're like really, but just for now, can you just wait by the door? And then look at this throne I'm gonna give you in a minute. Once I've done like all this, and you're gonna come back and you're gonna be my editor. So I feel like the, the making it an uh, external thing allows us to make friends with them in a way. So I like that Borges talks about them, really the necessariness of them is, that, is, is real.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an excellent example because they're yeah, the, and that's what Borges is really good at. It's not that the monsters are necessarily frightening. Um, oftentimes they can be helpers, they're just fantastical creatures, but we're now learning from psychology that uh, creative visualization like this is extre- and imaginative work like this is extremely healthy for creative process and also for in clinical settings for, you know, for overcoming trauma. So a lot of times in traumatic situations, clinicians are using monster narratives and imagery to help people work through really difficult stuff by reimagining it in this way.
0: Hochigen Hochigin, being that would rather leave us speechless. Spiteful and suspicious, the Hochigin is a miserly bushman found on the various plains of places. With a wariness of language and a hatred of animals, especially men and monkeys, he stockpiles speech with hostile vengeance. Description, envious, stoopy, an extraordinary hoarder, the type that takes his toys home in a huff. Voice, caught breath, a coral shh, habitat, wherever everything is best unsaid. (laughs) yo <laughs> yo Nisna, being that as half is whole. A simple case of addition by subtraction, the Nisna is an unfinished dream, half thought, half life, half asked, half cocked, half blood, half breed, half aware, half awake, and half asleep, a phantom limb. description, a partial completion. It leaves where it goes, destined for less, enough. Voice drops off. Habitat, here and there, a beach in Borneo. littered on the beach its trail following the way of all flesh its tail drags along discarded sweetmeat this being far from cured is endowed with speech can tell a tale
2: I want to mention that this is not just um, the... uh, Oh, we are so grateful for you for having invited us because without that, we would not have had this deadline to actually finish the album and have it printed in ink uh, in a 50-page book um, with a download code on the back that we just picked up from the printers in Long Island. Data graphic. Beautiful, beautiful... Generations old printing company that can do anything, and they made a they made we have a limited run of um, books, and we have them here for sale. And if you buy a book, there's a download code on the back where you can get the uh, the album. We also have um, download cards if you just want to walk away with just the album and not the book. But this is a really exciting celebration because this has been a really long time coming, and so many people have helped us along the way. There have been so many musicians and designers and arrangers and uh, um, directors and cosplays. I mean, just so many people have have changed this project that to say, for sure to say, this is Carla Kilstead's Necessary Monsters is not correct. And even to say this is Carla Kilstead and Raphael's Necessary Monsters is not correct, it's just, we decided to print all the names of everyone in the book, people who funded it, people who like, and it's kind of humbling, just how, what a process. So just a huge yawp to the sky, of of, everyone who over the last 15 years has, including you, and including Roulette, and Eli, who's making us sound good tonight, and uh, just everyone with so much, so much gratitude, and there's no way to tell you guys to really tell you guys about all those people, except to say,
3: they're they're with us. Go ahead and tell us, no, I'm kidding.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Two hours later. This is a
3: really special (laughs) evening. I, I, you know, and and Carla, like, I mean, I'm just so, I'm grateful that you're part of uh, the Relevant Tones Festival. I mean, I think it's it's, it's the best way to go out. Uh, And uh, when when we talked, um, you know, a a year ago or something, it was in the middle of COVID and um, doing all this research on Borges and I I find your piece and, uh, you know, yeah, never in my dreams would I believe that I would be uh, a part of, uh, you know, completing this stage of the project, you know, because you may very well live with this project forever, who knows, but, you know, but this stage of the project. So I, I'm very pleased because, uh, as, as Stephen said, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal piece of art, it, you know, it's not just music, it's everything. It's a really great piece of art, and it's one of those things that stays with you, and you can think about it, and, and think about it in so many different ways, the, the psychological aspects of it, just the awesome music. I mean, I love the way you introduce each creature before. That the piece starts I think that's a really kind of whimsical and fun way to do it but then some of them are like the more you think about it you're like whoa that's really heavy <laughs> you know like I mean so there's just it, it, it's a really multi-layered multi-faceted project in so many respects and, and just you know congratulations.
2: Thank you. The Anna Anna Heard, Anna Anna Singer who I think is just is now Anna Hurd, who designed the book I just want to point out one thing that's that that might elude you if you're not looking for it every single thing in the book, including the icons of the monsters and the, um, the, the images that describe them are made only using typewriter f- font elements. Um, and some of that is obvious, the whole thing is in typewriter font, but every, all, every monster has an icon and it's only made from reconfigured typewriter elements.
3: Which is really cool. And those are available for sale in the lobby? They are. Yes. And for folks watching on the live stream, is there any place to get them, or will there be online?
2: There, there will be. It'll take me It'll take me a few weeks. I have a lot of people whom I need to send the book to. Um, so we're going to see how many are left once I've done that. And then we will put the rest up on Bandcamp, on my uh, Carla Kilstead Bandcamp page, um, which is where the album lives. If you want to just download it, um, you can go to Bandcamp and do a search for my name. I'm sorry, the Swedes put extra letters in there names. There it is. Is there Kihl? No, it's not K-I-H-L. You know, figure out how to spell it. Um, And you can, and it's the, I just started this band campaign, so it's the only thing up there.
3: Fantastic. All right. Great. Um, Stephen, thanks so much for coming out and, and lending your expertise to, uh, to this tonight. Um, Raphael and Carla, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, you have this huge performance in front of you. Thank you for, for chatting a little bit uh, with us before the show. It's just so nice to get these insights for everybody. And again, um, you can find Relevant Tones anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, it's, it's one of the only podcasts out there about contemporary classical music, so check it out. Thanks, everybody. The Ink Monkey.
0: Being that indicts writing resents text. The ink monkey is a critic with an unwritten grudge, an unforgiving censor of the sensory, the ultimate editor. An ink junkie ever since the liquid's been in print, this dumb simian hates more than anything. The writer's aimless, I don't know about aimless, wasteful, I don't know about wasteful, but, but ramblings. Maybe like this one. Sorry. Description. Feral. Voice. Gravel. Habitat. Inkwell.
2: We'll be out there with books and have chit chat and drinks and whatnot.
3: Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org.